All right. Well, good morning. We're in our adjustment series as Jamie's been taking us through this chapter 12 in John where we're watching some of Christ's uh, kind of wrap up to his public ministry. So he, he's done a lot of uh, laying big work here. And now he's, he's coming to the end of the public ministry where he's now kind of starting to fine tune a little bit. And Jamie told you that's why he entitled this an adjustment series. And so what's been going on uh, really this last week, I found out not this Tuesday, but the previous Jamie said, I'm going to be traveling a bunch during that week, which means I'm not going to have the prep time I normally would. So Neil, you're up in the worship center. And I went, well, great. Can I preach in the venue? And he said, yeah, you just have to preach on this same passage. And I went, great. And he goes, and you've got to kind of land the plane where I would have landed the plane or I can't take off from there next week. And it was like, okay, well, as a seminary student, that's kind of the last thing you ever do. You know, they always tell you, put everything aside, study the passage, and then find out where the passage is going. Uh, Jamie's an incredible exegete, so where he had landed the plane uh, in this case was really cool. And so we're going to walk through that today, but we're going to start in John chapter 12, and it's a really long passage, so I'm not going to read it all at one time in the beginning like I normally would. We're just going to start where Jamie ended last week on uh, verse 27. And it's really an important verse because it flows and really creates a foundation for what we're going to do for the rest of the morning. And we're going to throw it up on the screen here, and it says this. It says, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Now, Jamie talked last week, and he talked about the word suke, which is soul. And he gave it some definition. He hung a little more uh, detail around it than just the soul because there's a lot of even secular understandings of what the soul is. And he said, really, it's the being of a person. It's kind of what's at the center of them, what really makes them them. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the very essence, me, is troubled, but this word troubled, that phrase, uh, soul is troubled, is a really powerful one because it's not just like he's saying I'm bothered or I've got, I'm a little perturbed or I'm even a little nervous. This word for troubled is effectively saying he's horrified or he's revolted at the idea of what is coming. So re-seeing that verse and what it is, he's saying now my very being is troubled because he's kind of coming to a little bit fuller revelation of what's going on. Now, there's really two ways to interpret this opening foundational verse in in verse 27 here. And one of the ways would be to view this as a rhetorical question, as if Jesus is saying, now is my soul troubled, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Uh, R.C. Sproul gives a little bit of a different interpretation, and many agree with him. And it's that Jesus is in the middle of this wrestling match, a wrestling match that will continue to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's as if Jesus, who has entered into weak human flesh, is sort of having it out with himself here as he's kind of going on. And N.T. Wright, one of the commentators, would say this, the other gospels don't show us this side of Jesus, this internal troubled discussion he has with himself until we get to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, John has brought it forward so that we see it now in Jerusalem before his arrest. Jesus come to weak human flesh This flesh in the midst of what is coming is crying out for relief. Jesus in his humanity is going, oh, and we see this in the garden. It's that moment where Jesus is sitting there going, can this cup pass from my hand? And he goes, no, your will be done, but not mine. We have a very similar interaction. The beauty of it is we're seeing it earlier on in the process. Uh, Really, it's this idea of, again, like a commentator would say, it's this, this flesh that's shrinking from suffering like we all might. I find this really encouraging. And it's like, well, this doesn't seem like a super encouraging passage. So many times people sit back and they go, you know what? Jesus, uh, he's God. He can't identify with me. 
That's garbage. It's garbage. He came and he walked in weak human flesh, flesh that wanted to shrink from some of the most incredible things that would ever be done here on earth. His flesh is crying out in this moment to say, I want to be done. I want to move on. And what John is showing us is this heart condition of Christ, the emotions that he's experiencing. It's the behind the scenes look. And John is uniquely qualified to do this because as we'll read in a couple of chapters, he's the disciple that Jesus loved. He has this extremely close, arguably Jesus' best friend, and he knows so much about that. The thing I really liked about this week uh, as I was studying this is in looking at what's going on in Jesus, because he's going to go forward in the next verse and say, Father, glorify your name, or as he says here, but for this purpose have I come to this hour. It's as if Jesus is wrestling and then going, no, 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 I know what needs to be done. I can't sidestep or shrink the horror, the horrified, uh, horrific events that are coming as my soul is horrified. There's something bigger. It's verse 28. It's that you be glorified. Father, glorify your name. It's this reality that Jesus isn't going to sidestep anything. And what I loved in my study this past week was to think and to observe in the midst of Jesus' heart how reflective it is of where we're going in just a few days at the cross where horrific events, the tearing of flesh, the entire weight of the human sin problem placed upon one perfect lamb, horrific in nature, unjust in its existence, followed by the resurrection glory that will exist as he rises from the grave, capturing mankind back that God could have them yet again. And yet Jesus is in the midst of the exact same thing, isn't he? Horrific revelation of what he's going through, and yet a desire to glorify the Father. Father, that your name would be glorified. And it's for a very specific reason that I wish I had three weeks to unpack, but I've got three minutes. It's for this. It's that the preeminent driving force in the life of Christ was to glorify the Father. Now, you guys have got blank notes today because I have no idea of what I'm going to say is going to affect you. So write this down, though, because I want this written down. Is the preeminent driving force in your life to glorify the Father? Like outside of our desire for comfort, outside of our desire to be secure or to feel safe or to create safety and security and comfort in our own lives, is there a driving force in your life like Christ to glorify your heavenly Father? Because for Christ it was. For him, it was to stand back and in the full revelation in weak flesh going, oh my gosh, what is coming, he steps back in and goes, no, it's you that I want to glorify. It's for your purposes that I want to walk. And I want that question to burden you just a little bit. I want that written on a mirror in your bathroom. I want an expo pen to kind of take a minute and put that down. Because if you start asking that question and you start making it foundational in the way that you walk through life, asking, is, is it the, the Lord, is it my heavenly Father that I'm looking to glorify? Is that what's driving me in these life experiences? Then I'll tell you, your life will start to look different. Because it will become a bit of a weight that you will carry. And it, at the same time, it will create incredibly glorifying experiences with your heavenly Father. And like I said, I can't unpack that too much more. But uh, we're moving on from there. And after Jesus says, my soul's troubled for this purpose I have come. Father, glorify your name. We get one heck of a response. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. 
No sooner has Jesus made his purpose and his driving force known to glorify God than we have a resounding sound or voice from heaven that says, I have glorified it and I have glorified, I will glorify it again. What does that mean? Because that's kind of one of those uh, biblical phrases that you go, boy, I could apply it here and there and everywhere. I could see it meaning a bunch of different things. Again, through study this week, and I think it just is right there, I have glorified it is a reference to the incarnation. It's the word become flesh in Christ. And so as Jesus makes this declaration, Father, glorify your name, we get this resounding voice that says, I have glorified it. The ministry and the life of Christ is glorifying to the Father because his driving preeminent force is to bring glory to his name. And so he's saying, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. Yeah, that's a reference to what's coming in just a few days at the resurrection. It's a full picture of Christ's life encapsulated in just this one declaration from heaven that he is glorifying to the Father. The words become flesh and he will be glorified further through the death, through this horrific event that will yet bring glory. Now, the crowd has no problem with this. They're totally tracking with Christ on this one. As it says, the crowd stood there and heard it and said, oh, that it had thundered. Or others said, an angel has spoken to him. Yeah, they totally get this. They've got no problem with what's going on here. They think it's the weather. They're looking for anything to try and explain it. Some of the more charismatic in the group are like, oh, it's probably an angel. You know, those are around all the time. And yet, they won't go just a step further to say, it's God. That must have been God. And this really is kind of our key point today. I'm going to continue to exposit the rest of the text, but I want you to to kind of mess around with this a little bit and be sidetracked while I finish this. But I want you to hear the key point today because I think they're making a critical error that we are still making to this day. I think they're trying to find and trying to create a natural explanation for a supernatural God. I think they're sitting back and they're going, wait, what if it were weather? Yeah, weather. We, we, weather's loud. Let's do that. Or maybe, maybe it's an angel. We're not really sure. I'll give you an example from our lives. Uh, my wife and I have a good friend who is diagnosed uh, at, with stage four testicular cancer. So stage four testicular cancer and like not in a van outside of a Safeway, like by a medical professional. Sat down and, and he had this kind of eye-opening deal, as they said, it's stage four, it's testicular cancer, and not only that, we're so sorry to tell you, it's spread to your lymph nodes, and it's also spread to your lungs. And he's a young guy, he's my age. And so when this happened, him and his wife sat down and had to start reasoning through, what does this mean? So they did something absurd, they asked their friends to start praying for them, and some of their friends uh, sat back and said, we're going to start asking God to heal you. So they started praying, God, will you heal him? Will you heal him? Will you bring healing? Will you move powerfully in his body? Lord, you created this body. We know that you have the ability to make it right. They started to pray. He went and he had this procedure done. They removed the, uh, the organ that was, uh, had cancer in it. They removed it. They said, yes, there's cancer here, but we have something interesting to tell you. The cancer is no longer in your lymph nodes. It's no longer in your lungs. He sat back and it was, oh my gosh. And so as they kind of wrestled through this for the next couple of days, the doctor called and said, hey, we've come up with the reason for why you no longer have cancer in your lymph nodes or in your lungs. It was a misdiagnosis. (laughs) 
You see, this doctor had to find a rational, logical explanation. And let's cut him some slack. I'm sure there's a, probably a lot of medical cases out there that don't include the phrase, miraculously healed by the God of the Bible, right? It's probably not something that we get a lot of. So he had to find a way. It was either like misdiagnosis, it was an error in the lab. He had to come up with a logical reason why this had happened. While on the other side of the ball, all of my friends just simply said, thank you. We do that. And though we're not chained to like a medical practice type experience, I think we still do this so many times in our lives. We try and find some way to explain or to understand all the things that are happening around us. We fight really, really hard to try and kind of move things into a place where we can logic our way to an answer, where we can rationalize what's going on around us. And I think at times it's so that we can live in this mirage called control. Oh, I get this. That makes sense to me. Uh, one led to two, which leads to three. I'm okay again. I think we're kind of falling into a similar deal that the crowd falls into. And that's really where Jamie wants us to land today as we wrap this up. But I'm going to continue to break down some of this, uh, the rest of the passage, because it's paramount for us understanding just how big Christ really is and what it is that he's calling us to. The crowd's super confused, and so Jesus answers them, as he so often does, with something that makes a lot of sense, and they still struggle with it. Verse 30 says, Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Why that answer? Well, within verse 29, you can see why. It says, an angel has spoken to him. The way that this is being understood by the crowd is that Jesus is troubled, he's deeply troubled, he's horrified, he's revolted, he cries out, and that this voice came from heaven, heaven for his behalf. And what Jesus is clarifying is, no, I'm good. This was for you. This wasn't for me. It was so that the crowd could hear an affirmation that Christ was glorifying to his heavenly father. It was so that they would hear not only the declaration that, that God was glorified in Christ, but the revelation prophetically that he will be glorified again by what's coming. It's a full encapsulation and a response to the confusion that's going on in 29. Now, Jesus continues on in 31 through 33, and, and it's a beautiful fulfillment of what he said in 28. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And then 33 says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. If anybody's confused by this, just at like a surface level read, it's because you have four parties talking in this one passage. You've got right here in 33, the author pops in and narrates a little bit for us. Jesus is talking, the crowd is talking, and then we have a divine voice from heaven. So there's a lot going on in the midst of this, but what Jesus does in 31 and 32 beautifully, again, references back to 28, the glorification of the Father through the Son. Now is the judgment of the world. How so? Well, when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, what's going to happen is the sin of humanity will wait upon him and will feel the wrath of God as it's poured out over him in judgment. It's the judgment of the sin of the world. Christ will carry that at the cross. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? How is that? Well, because Christ will reign. 
He will sit at the right hand. We'll cover that verse in just a second. It's how Jesus comes in and now moves into a place alongside reigning. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw people to myself. It's really easy when we hear that, lifted up from the earth, we immediately want to go to the ascension. John very helpfully clarifies that there's something bigger. He said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. You see, the beauty of what John does here and what Jesus is doing is he's alluding to lifted up from the earth on the cross, boom. Now he sits there ready to experience all of what we don't have to because he did. And in that, he redeems mankind. This is a full picture of what goes on in the crucifixion, that in that moment where he covers the sin of the world, where he pays for that, the perfect lamb, he now stands there and gets humankind back. God goes to man because man couldn't go to God. And it's reference of that. It's fulfilling that kind of what's coming and he will glorify it again. You know, the reality as we roll through this is that the crowd just doesn't get it. We see that in 34. Let's take a look at it. So the crowd answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? The reality is that this phrase lifted up was a common phrase to refer to crucifixion. And the crowd is getting that. They're figuring it out because they're going, wait a minute. We've heard in the law or the Old Testament that the Messiah will live forever. Guys, this is a proof text as to why if you look at God exhaustively in the natural frame, you cannot get to where he really exists. You cannot wrap your head around an infinite God by using a finite mind. You cannot get to a supernatural God by always trying to explain away your life naturally. The crowd's doing exactly that and they're gonna miss the whole show. They're sitting back trying to wrestle through this going, hey, listen, we've heard from the law. This is your deal, right? That you have to live on forever. Jamie talked last week about how there were political expectations of Christ. He was going to roll into town, decimate Roman occupation in the Roman Empire, and then reign from a physical throne. You can't get there naturally because what he's saying is accurate. The law is true. He will live on forever. But what will it look like? Where will he live? Where will he reign? Let's read it. Ephesians 1, 19 through 22. I'll read it out loud. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the work of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and get this venue and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority, power and dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. That's how he lives on forever. You can't get there with a natural frame of mind. You see what Jesus is alluding to, what he does is better than their expectations. They don't need him physically here on earth. Where they need him, the crowd needs him in heaven. They need him seated at God's right hand, above all power and authority, as head of all things to the church. But the crowd can't get there because their only frame is him in physical body, naturally reigning from a throne here on earth. And he's going beyond what they can do. He's going beyond their natural understanding. So what he's alluded to, what they've asked 
He's going to go beyond it. And listen to what he does in 35 and 36. And so Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is so paramount. This is how when you read the New Testament, everything ties back to what Christ did or what Christ said. What's going on here is that John set this whole gospel up with just beautiful verses in the prologue. In the beginning, he started with this. So I'm gonna throw it up on the, on the uh, screen here and I want you to just hear this because this is what John's tying into. Verses we just read, now listen to how he starts his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John, in the middle of his gospel here, is going, remember what I said in, in the beginning? And is now tying into it here yet again. The light, was, is, the light is among you for only a little while longer. This is verse 35. While you have it, walk in the light, lest the darkness overtake you. Light in the prologue, light in chapter 12. Darkness in the prologue, darkness in chapter 12. This is why... When I read the prologue, other religions, other belief systems fall short. This is why Mormon theology doesn't make sense to me. How do you get around John 1? How do you get around that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God? How do you get around it? Because that the theological system says that Jesus was a created being. It says that he was created as the offspring of God the Father. I can't get there from John 1. And they do some hermeneutical gymnastics and they start flipping around in the Greek and going, well, we don't really know. It sounds pretty clear to me that in the beginning he was and he created and that's why other systems fall short. Why do we use the term lost? Why do we use that term? Someone who doesn't know the Lord, why do we use it? Because Jesus uses something here that is so beautiful. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. If you don't know where you're going, what are you? Say lost, lost. But here's the beauty of it. Jesus isn't like basically sitting there taunting someone saying you're lost and you're sort of out of luck because nobody cares about you. No, the message is beautiful. It's the light is among you. Come and walk in the light. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Do you hear Paul's language from Romans about adoption echoing through Christ now? He's coming in and Paul comes back in with this beautiful picture of how we're adopted as heirs, sons of Christ. Jesus right here is setting the foundation for that very teaching of Paul, that you may become sons of light. This is the beauty of the gospel, that yes, you are hopeless and you are lost and it's not a go figure that out on your own, it's a please come, that I long for you as your father. I want to adopt you, that you would be sons of light, that you would not wander around through life not knowing where you're going anymore. I want you to know me as your father because I want to love you. That's the foundation of everything we do around here. Acceptance and being loved in the name of Jesus Christ, the savior, that's it. I wanna do something here today because as I've shown a couple of times through this passage, uh, you really, 
you miss God if you try and explain him through a natural frame. So I want to do this real quick and stick with me because for some of you, this may seem cheesy, but I, I hope it makes sense. Close your eyes real quick for me, would you? And just listen for a second. I'm going to get quiet in a minute, which is going to be hard for me, but I want you to listen right now and I want you to tell me if you can hear music. There's music right now. There's, there's country music that's moving through the air. There's classical music that's moving through the air, beautiful symphonies that have been written by brilliant men. There's worship songs. There's classic rock. There's probably some Jimmy Buffett in there. Here's the reality. There's music right now. Open your eyes and look at me real quick. Do you guys hear any music right now? You don't, do you? There's a reality for that. You don't hear music right now because you don't have the right antenna. Just take a look. For those of you who were born, uh, I don't know, after the year, if you're like 15 or, or under, you have no idea what this is. This, my friends, is a radio. Yeah. I used to tune into Garth Brooks when I was a little kid by hiding one of these under my pillow. I would listen to country music at night. And the way that it works is it picks up radio waves. So I, I want you to see if, uh, if this makes sense. Derek. Where did this music come from? Did this just show up now when I flipped the switch? What? When did it arrive? Did it arrive because the switch went on or was that music here before you got here this morning? Was this music all around you throughout the entire service. Whilst we're singing praises to God, radio waves are carrying every music imaginable back and forth, invisibly, in our midst. How is that? And we didn't perceive it. Well, the reality is, for all of us, if you have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, the scriptures so beautifully and confidently affirm that you have the antenna to receive revelation from God. You have the Holy Spirit. You are sealed in the Holy Spirit, preserved by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in just a few chapters in this very book, Jesus will go on to say, it's good that I go so the helper, the advocate, can come. Your antenna to be able to see God, the one who preserves you so you don't wander in darkness. He reveals the things of God to the sons of light. That's what he does. And yet so many times we wander around through the world and we struggle to see where God is interacting. And so for that, I want to give you your adjustment today. If you just turn your attention to the screen, we have to move from seeing life mostly through the natural to learning to recognize the supernatural. We don't get to sit back and say, God, this is how I want you to arrive. Only show up that way. <laughs> That ain't how it works. We have to move away from a mostly natural lens to at least being willing to learn to recognize the supernatural. That's a challenge for us at times. I'll give you an example. I pull you back a little bit. For some of you, you may go, Rustin, I probably side with the doctor a little more on that whole diagnosis thing than I do with maybe even some of the way your friends prayed. That's okay, let's scale it back to everyday life because here's our challenge sometimes. I've encouraged you guys before. I know probably most of you didn't do it. It was like, hey, that was a good idea, but I got this. Um, I've encouraged you to get a prayer journal and just start writing down the things that you're asking God for. 
Because here's what's hard. We become asking machines. We sit there and we look at what's going on in our life and then we kind of assume that it's gonna go on forever so we ask God to make it stop. That's what most of us do. Will you make it stop? This is a problem I have. Make it stop. This is a problem I have. Make it stop. And we're constantly looking at the future, just churning through problems and asking God to show up. Now, what most of us don't do is look back expectantly at what God's done to sit down and to go, here's all the things that I've been asking God for throughout the last year. And oh my goodness, he helped that one. He did that. He did that. He did that. Because here's what you'll, what you'll realize if you start keeping track of what you're asking God to do, he's been doing quite a bit. You'll look at your life and you'll stand there and you'll go, oh my gosh, here's, he completely changed that circumstance. I have no idea how. He just changed that circumstance. I don't have an explanation for it. Or you know what? This circumstance didn't change at all, but my heart did. An even more miraculous thing, by the way, when God changes the human heart, something no doctor can do, something you're not capable of on your own, but the Holy Spirit changes the composition of the human heart. Tell me that's not miraculous. Man, anybody who's been married 10 minutes, you're like, if I could just change her mind, that would be really, that ain't how it works. God changes your spouse, you don't. There's a reality for each and every one of us that we sit back and if we actually look, here's what happens. And guys, this is worth hanging on to. We look at the things that God has done in our life and it creates faith. And we invest faith like a dividend in the future. So now, instead of looking at the future, fearful of what's coming because you are sure God has abandoned you and doesn't hear you, you now look at the future with faith that God is your supply, he is your provision, he will never leave you or forsake you. And faith starts to guide you into the future because you've watched what God's done and now what you see is he starts to stretch you slowly. But some of you feel like you're about to break because you haven't looked at what he's done. Listen, his character doesn't change. He's everlasting to everlasting. He's the same. But sometimes we don't sit back and look at him for who he is. So I got some questions for you, two of them. Where do you feel God trying to get your attention outside of your understanding? I'm gonna challenge you on this. God is not interested in being understood. Let me say that again. God is not interested in being understood. He is interested in being known, and they are different. Because understanding comes with a finality to it. You stand outside of something and you go, I understand it. Is that almost a condescending sense of, of superiority? God is not interested in you standing outside of him and saying, I understand him. He is very interested in you sitting before him, knowing him in relationship. Do you see the difference? He's not interested in being understood. So where is God trying to get your attention outside of your understanding? And here, where do you feel convicted that you might be missing the sound of heaven? Where do you feel convicted that God might be doing things in your very midst that you are simply glazing over as you look at the future with fear rather than resting in the security of what God has done and will continue to do in your life. People come to my office, they camp out, they go, oh my gosh, Rustin, I'm just completely lost here. God has forgotten me, he's not doing things, and again, through no effect of my own, I sit down and I go, well, okay, let's talk through it. It sounds like God did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this. Do you recognize that those are incredibly loving ways to come around you during this time and continue to help you and meet you? Oh my gosh. I mean, guys, if you think about it as a pastor, I'm laying out a pretty bold thing today. 
I'm telling you to start tracking what God's doing because I have faith that he will reveal himself to you through what he's already doing. That's the faith I have in who God is in your lives. I, I wrote this down. This is probably, this is, I, I'm just gonna, this is probably like a plagiarism of like 12 guys' thoughts, but when I put it all together in my words, this is what it sounded like this week. We meet God how he wants to be met, not how we want him to appear. He has a supernatural nature. He exists infinitely, and we cannot force him into our finite box. It just won't work. And then kind of the last question, is the sound of heaven, right? Is, is glorifying God, which is the sound of heaven, the glory of God, is that the driving force in your life? Going back to what we talked about earlier, is that something you want to write on your mirror? Do you want to get audacious and say, is the driving force of my life that I would glorify God? Because if you're not willing to see him for who he is, it's really, really tough to get to a place where you go, I'm constantly glorifying him. Because you really don't believe that he's going to come through in the ways that he says he will. Because it's impossible for him. We make God smaller. We need to let him out of his box that we put him in and let him be who he says he is. We're going to respond. I'm going to have Derek uh, come up here with the team. And we're going to respond today. And here's why I'm such a big fan of response songs is that I think there's probably, you're, you're in one of two boats today. I either just challenged you and you're very uncomfortable with what we just talked about. And you're sort of going, Eesh, I, I don't know if I can get there. I'm not really sure how or what it looks like for me to get to a place where I can start stretching myself, going beyond my borders and my boundaries. Um, and if that's the case, then I'd say, use this time in worship to cry out and really ask God to meet you uh, in the midst of that. Because your fear, your doubt, that God's not, he's not gonna blush at that, okay? We understand he's done this with his kids before. Or I'm, I may have just kind of encouraged you to kind of open a God box that you just went, oh my gosh, he just got so much bigger and so much more awesome and I just wanna shout out to him and we're gonna give you an opportunity to do that. So my encouragement in this time is just, just respond. If your reality for God just changed, it's not because he changed, it's because you opened up. He's been the same forever and will be forever. But I just want us to take some time right now and let's just respond to God in song as we cry out and just ask him to meet us right where we are.